Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, what's in store for 2024? Richard Siddle, Editor-in-Chief of The Buyer, brings us his annual predictions for the drinks world, where there's never a dull moment. From duty changes to zero alcohol and sustainable packaging. Stay tuned to find out what we'll be drinking this year and, of course, what we'll be talking about. So a new year is upon us. 2024 is well underway and we're hurtling towards the end of the first quarter of this century. So what are we likely to be drinking in this year ahead? What will influence the choices we make as to what goes in our glasses? And how much are we going to be paying for the pleasure? Richard Siddle is Editor-in-Chief of The Buyer, a media partner of The Drinking Hour podcast. He's a veteran of the drinks world, a business journalist by background, and also something of a mystic, it would seem, given how accurate his predictions have been in recent years when we've had this conversation. Uh, Richard, uh, Chief, welcome back to The Drinking Hour. Thanks, Chief. Nice to be back. It's good to start the year with you. and. Um... Have a look ahead to see what's what's going on or what, what might happen in the, uh, the the months to come. Yeah, well, you were pretty bang on with your uh, predictions again last year. And uh, our listeners clearly enjoyed it because it was one of the uh, top rated episodes of wow. the last year. So how's about that? Anyway, uh, let's talk first about something that we talked about a lot this time last year. And I fear is still a pressing issue. And that is... Price. So this time last year, fixed costs for producers were rising rapidly. Inflation was rampant. We had uh, the energy crisis um, and there was a big duty rise on the cards uh, as well, which was just going to make matters worse. The theme was at the time, drinks are going to become more expensive. Has that come to pass? Yes and no. I say no, only only because they are probably going to become more expensive this year. I think I think what we saw when we were talking last year, there was this sort of threat of uh, a big duty change in the way that the government organises or controls the uh, duty on all alcohol products. And that, that actually did come into play in August, which basically means now that alcohol is being uh, calculated on the, the strength of a product, so be it a beer, wine, or spirit, and that 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 effectively has meant that there's not now a whole load of series of different price brands and duty levels uh, of a different kind of products. But what didn't happen is the um, 
they they they've now scaled it so that um, the first changes came in in August, and then the second changes are going to come in in February 2025. So we're kind of in a bit of a bit of a holding pattern to some extent in terms of the duty. But um, the, the bottom line is that um, to add into all those dry good costs and increases in, as you say, inflation and and, and uh, cost and cost of living issues, um, the drinks industry and retailers and restaurants are now having to tackle or deal with this new duty regime, which I think they're still kind of grappling with, really, to be honest, and trying to work out how how best to either handle the costs or pass them on to the to the consumer. Interesting, yes. Uh, I work with um, as a consultant with a, a major importer, and uh, I was talking to uh, my contact there who said a lot of these price rises, they haven't actually flown through the system yet because they buy in advance, um, they've already paid for a lot of stuff, and they haven't actually had a chance yet fully to adjust the portfolio to take account of some of the increases that are still coming. So in a sense, as you rightly say, we're only really seeing uh, the start of this, aren't we? Yeah, so what happened, I mean, as I said, the, the duty changes happened on August the 1st. So a lot of drinks importers uh, and, and, and import, um, yeah, drink distributors and uh, retailers, they they bought in advance. Basically, they brought in a lot of product and then held it in bond, which basically means that they could you know, buy the products at the old duty uh, prices. And I think a lot of them have tried to make those stocks last through to Christmas. So I think we saw, obviously, competitive pricing at Christmas anyway. And I think now is when the sort of the dust has officially settled. I think we're going to now start seeing, um, I think in wine, they're sort of calculating it being around 50p per bottle, which clearly um, at the lower end of the market has a big impact and less so the higher up the food chain you go or the price chain you go. So effectively, it means I think in the next sort of like over the next few months, uh, we're going to see uh, very big changes in terms of pricing, both in supermarkets and in your local wine uh, merchants and also in restaurants and bars. And that's across wines, beers and spirits. Um, And I think that's partly to say because, you know, as you mentioned, you know, people buy or making the decisions sort of on a almost quarterly, six month basis. So, um, yeah, I think the next few months is, is when that's all that's really going to come to light. It's a sobering thought. And this time last year, when we were chatting, we talked about duty reform, which at the time was in the long grass. Um, it was originally a Rishi Sunak idea when he was chancellor. He's, um, of course, teetotal as well, although I'm sure that's merely coincidental in all of this. But you said at the time, this time last year, duty reform is the last thing we need. We just have to hope that the government will see sense and shelve this duty rise. Well, um, maybe they weren't listening. Well, I suppose the only, the only slight good news there was that in the autumn statement, um, they, they didn't, because they basically they made these changes in August, which uh, I think was the biggest duty increase across the board for about 60 years. And then there was, a, there's, a, there was another threat that in the autumn statement, he could have put up duty again by the, the, the RPI rate. But um, actually, yeah, they, that actually was held. So they, they froze the duty in, in the autumn. Um, but of course, we got the budget again in March. So, you know, they may well have a rethink then, uh, whether or not they may or may not do, because of, you know, the election, we don't, still don't know when the election might be and whether whether duty is seen as part of the political football of um, of, of, of of tax rising. But I think going back to the duty increases, I mean, just I know that it's, it's hardly the uh, the most brightest of conversations we're talking, talking about in the new year, but essentially what it means is that, like, um, 
in wine, for example, any wine above 11.5% has a, has a higher duty level than wine below 11.5%. That's the sort of the easiest way of describing it. But what we're going to be seeing over the next few months is a massive change in the way the big retailers in particular are buying wine. And I think we're going to try and see they're going to put a lot of pressure on their producers to try and get wines below 11.5%. Uh, which basically means we're going to be seeing a lot more products on shelf um, at a lower alcohol rate. Now, whether that's that may well be good news in terms of arguably in terms of health, and it could be good news in terms of like what a retailer can buy and then sell the wine for. Whether that's good news for the consumer who's actually looking for a nice bottle of wine to drink, you know, at a normal the normal level that they would expect, is another 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 kettle of fish, really. And you talked this time last year about the amazing uh, sort of sense of innovation in the drinks industry, uh, the way that buyers adapt to changing circumstances. Um, and uh, have we seen that come to pass already? Are we going to see more of that as buyers work with their new circumstances? Yeah, very much so, yeah. I, I mean, I must say I suppose the only worry about all this, though, is, um, you know, lots of people talk, you know, you talk to marketing people and they say there's you know, a big difference between industry-led innovation and what you, what, what you might call consumer-led innovation. And by industry-led innovation, I mean, it's like people making changes and doing things because they have to for their own purposes, um, for, the, for, for the point of view of costs and, and managing your own business. And I think the danger with the duty increases is because the government has said, you know, any product with a slightly lower alcohol can be charged, will have a lower duty, therefore can be sold for less money. It means if you want to buy your bottle of wine between, say, five and eight pounds in a retailer, in a supermarket, um, it's going to be a very different kind of wine to what, it, what, what you were buying last year. So, you know, all your Argentinians, your Chilean wines, your Australian wines, uh, South African wines, well, a lot of wine basically um, is sold above eleven and a half percent. So a lot of it is sort of in, in that kind of twelve and a half to fourteen and a half percent, and that's the area where all those wines are now going to have this at least fifty p increase. It's been very noticeable at all the major wine events last year, all the big trade exhibitions. Wine producers were saying that every time they spoke to a supermarket buyer, they were just saying, "We need a wine below eleven and a half percent." Now, if you're making wine in very hot, hot countries around the world, you know, the reason why an alcohol, a wine is 13% or 14% is because of the fact it's, you know, you're in a hot climate and grapes take a long, take mature differently. And therefore, there's to have a higher alcohol content. So in order to bring that wine down below 11.5%, they have to do all sorts of things to it in the wine making process and there's a whole load of kind of like technical ways in which they do that but but effectively it means that if you're drinking wine at 11 10 9 percent from a country like australia or chile or argentina it means it would have gone through some sort of watering down well not watering in, in inverted commas process and my my worry really is that there's, there's already an issue with wine in terms of falling sales and and a, and a, and a dropping consumption of wine um, if if the retailers then literally start lowering their alcohols or watering down the alcohol levels to you know these the sort of nine, eight, nine, ten percent price levels, you know, a consumer going in isn't necessarily going to know that. So when they go home and then drink that wine in the evening or have it for their, their with their Sunday roast, 
that might be thinking this wine doesn't isn't really the same as I as I'm used to, and it's like, well, are they then going to go back and buy another bottle? And you know, so it may well work in terms of like hitting the price points and allowing retailers to carry on selling wine at those levels. But my my fear is uh, by doing so, they're going to potentially lose more sales because consumers are going to ultimately say, well, actually, to be honest, I'd rather drink a wine at a higher alcohol level and pay a little bit more or pay or, or, or worryingly just don't buy wine or buy, buy less wine. Yes, and I've seen this in the retail tastings in the autumn because, of course, if you simply cannot get that wine to 11.5%, and as you rightly say, with very many uh, wines that are very popular, let's take the Argentinian Malbec as an example, uh, nigh on impossible to get that to um, below 11.5%. So then you've got a problem because you've got the extra 50p you talked about. Well, what do you do when your consumer doesn't really want to pay more than six quid for a bottle of wine? Well, you go about making the wine more cheaply. Your margin might be hit. You pay the supplier less, but actually the quality of the grapes that goes in uh, potentially isn't as good. Um, and you get a cheaper wine effectively for the same price. Um, and and I've, um, I've tasted that in some of the retail tastings. It's not the fault of the buyers. It's not the fault of the retailers because people have a, a very fixed idea of what they're prepared to pay for a bottle of wine. And there's a cost of living crisis as well. But the wine, frankly, it's just not going to be as nice, is it? Well, it's not, no. And I, and I, yeah, I mean, I do appreciate yeah, that there's a certain level, certain level, I suppose, that people are prepared to pay for wine. But then equally, you could you could say that that's, that price point is one that retailers themselves and the, and the industry is almost uh, beholden to. So, you know, the, the, the average price of wine hasn't really gone up a, consider, a, a very much in the last, say, 10, 15 years. You know, it's only gone from, say, you know, £4 to £7, well, less than £7 in, 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 in that time. So we as a nation of shoppers are becoming are become used to going into a retailer and buying wine at those levels, 5 6 £7. But when you when you factor in duty is knocking on duty and VAT is now knocking on three pounds a bottle, you know you you you're, and when you when you add in shipping and margins and all the other uh, costs in between, you know you're, there's not a lot of wine actually going in those bottles. So that to me there's there's two things that could go on here. One is um, more retailers just bite the bullet and actually start moving some of these bottles up the food up, up the pricing ladder. So you actually do start having more wines at between you know eight and eight nine ten pounds which may bring a lot of people out in a cold sweat but you know that that in terms of wine quality is where we're going to see more normal 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 tasting wines or 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 equally what i think we might see is actually at the moment our top 10 selling wines you know majority of them come from all over the world including as you say chile argentina australia we might in a year's time find that actually quite a lot of those wines um, have less listings and they're and retailers as you say are very canny at, at moving um, start sourcing more wine from lower countries that have naturally lower alcohol wine so you know parts of eastern europe um parts well mostly europe really sort of the northern 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 climate um so we may well start seeing more wines coming in from the likes of slovenia you know, like likes of well, what's what's you know parts of France as well. I mean, France, Italy, Spain, well, not necessarily Spain, but more more the northern 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 regions of of Europe. You know, they they may well find that actually 
Um, there's there's more wine coming in, and there's more own label wines. There's more wines that have been kind of like sourced specifically to hit these price points. Um, but yeah, I, I think if we would do this conversation again in a year's time, I think we will see a very different wine aisle. I think that we will see quite a few of these brands either either purposely moving up themselves at the pricing ladder, or they, they're going to be moved out and replaced by, as I say, some of these lower alcohol wines from different, from different parts of Europe. Interesting. And the point you make on industry-led innovation versus consumer innovations are a really um, interesting point as well. Uh, let's talk about some other trends uh, that are continual in a sense uh, in that we talked about sustainability last year uh, we're not going to stop talking about sustainability quite clearly because we have a, a climate crisis um, are we going to st- see more innovation around packaging do you think yeah 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 and I, I must say I think we are well definitely sort of sustainability is a massive issue it's, it's I think consumers actually take sustainability arguably more seriously than well clearly our governments but clearly but 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 I think um they they want to see uh, retailers. They want to see businesses taking action and, and and giving them options. The issue, I suppose, is is are they then going to be prepared to pay uh, more for these um, different packaging formats? And are they actually possible when it comes to it? Are they actually going to swap their glass bottle of wine for a wine in a bag bagging box or a um, you know wine in a can or whatever? Um, and again, I think we do go back to this industry-led innovation versus consumer-led innovation um, issue because, again, some of these issues, the retailers in particular, are all now being hit with um, you know these sustainability targets, and they they look at their their businesses and they say, well, where can we make the big changes in our carbon footprint? And they look at the whole drinks aisle, and it's you know ninety percent of it is in glass, and glass is clearly such a major carbon issue so that they, they can clearly make some major changes to their bottom line by well, their bottom carbon line by by switching as many products as they can out of glass the only thing is you know will consumers go with them um and, and, and i think what we, we will start seeing is is a lot more lighter glass um options and i think the glass industry is clearly adapting and changing to this as well and they they themselves are making uh, new formats and there's going to be, you know, there, there are more sort of like what you might call like packaging, recycled recycled plastic bottles that look like glass but are actually recycled plastic. Uh, I think they, they potentially have a, a future. There's a thing called the paper bottle uh, by a company called Frugal Pack, which is mm. essentially a bottle made out of paper, which actually looks like a wine bottle, but it's um, very light. It's like, great. I, but what I think really is, yeah, yeah, they are good. But I think... What 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 we need to see is uh, you know retailers like for example Waitrose uh, I think last year made the very brave decision of moving all their tiny you know they don't want one eighty seven milliliter bottles of wine that you you, know, you might get on a plane they've moved them to cans and I think from what I understand you know that's actually been been quite a successful switch because um, you know it's quite a, it's quite a small niche part of their range anyway but um, they've moved all their those bottles to cans and we're seeing a lot more airlines so if you get on a lot more of the budget airlines the you know even the likes of virgin and british airways now they're they're like listing um cans uh wines in a can rather than in a bottle so the more we see this and um, in different occasions so obviously if you go to music festivals or sporting events you know you, you see more cans or you're seeing different kind of packaging formats in those areas and i think that again you know Coupled with the rising craft beer and the number of people now drinking drinking beer out of, beer out of a can, will all help. Um, 
my only concern, I think, is I suppose doing all these changes very much in step with the consumer and making sure they they understand why couldn't be tell to do this. And I think that's that's where Waitrose did very well. They were very clear when they mm. they switched their to cans. They made a, a big consumer awareness about it, and I think that's what they need to do. They need to take the consumer on that journey in the same way that Tesco all those years ago convinced us all to buy wines and screw cap and I think once we once we tried to open a bottle 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 in the cork or a bottle in the screw cap, it had a massive change to the industry. So I think I think mm. there's definitely opportunities for packaging change. But I think again it has to be done um in line with what consumers are actually willing to willing to, to buy. Yes, interesting. And um I spoke to I was actually um uh, traveling judging with the buyer at Waitrose who's responsible for uh, alternative formats um she's in her 20s uh, she's very good and she said it's it's been a great success actually that switch which as you say was very brave very bold the thing is you know cans uh, for the kind of picnic market the drinks on the go market uh, obviously things like festivals or whatever the can will hold its cool longer than a plastic miniature it's just much better as a format as well i think so that that shift as you say as long as you take people with you it, it's a no-brainer and, and the paper bottle greenals um do a gin uh in the paper bottle the difference in weight between that and the the hefty sort of glass bottle incredible and again looks the part because as you say it's bottle shaped it's just much lighter it's made with mostly recycled paper cardboard on the outside and a recyclable plastic um, pet uh, interior which i think may already come from recycled uh, plastic i'm not sure um, these products they're really innovative and actually as you say if you take people with you then then great i think we're going to see a lot more of this aren't we because as you say consumers there is plenty of evidence that providing it doesn't cost them much more, maybe, um, they want it. Yeah, and also they can look really cool as well. I mean, the nice thing about the um, some of that pivot bottle is they, they, they um, designers are using the whole bottle for the design. So when you pick it up, it's a kind of like, like a wraparound design. Um, and again, with cans, in the same way that, you know, a lot of craft beer, um, they're, you know, they're, they're like almost like little pop arts, you know, they're, they're like really cool. You know, you're, you're almost buying into the design as you are the brewer. And I, and I think that that's where... We're going to see, I think, those packaging formats, providing they look really nice and, and, and have a kind of a wow factor. I mean, there's a there's a boxed wine brand called Lalo. Um, the designs, that, that's a very, very design focused. And so you see it, and each one has a really, they're almost like kind of things you, you could, if you, you took the design and turn it into a frame, you know, you'd probably have it on your wall. And I, and I think that the idea there is that, you know, it's, it's, it's almost attracting people with their eyes as well as like buying into the fact it's sustainable as well. Um, yeah. And I think that goes, that goes back again to the, to the bottle and the that sort of five to seven pound bracket is, you know, it, it, it is quite depressing sometimes when you go into a retail and you look at the bottom shelf of wine at sort of between five and seven pounds. And a lot of those retailer brands in particular, they're almost selling wine the same way you might buy flour. It, I mean, it literally just says, you know, it'll have a kind of a purple label and just have Merlot written on it or mm. um you know malbec and it's just like it's almost like a kind of a commodity you know there's there's, there's sort of more innovation in the sort of um, wood polish um aisle than there is sometimes in the, the, in the and i think if retailers are going to you know water down these wines and have these wines being sold at you know nine ten eleven percent and in really very average designs i think they're kind of doing their their customers as a service but whereas i think there 
you know, if they look at the design and actually turn them into some into real like eye catching, you know, it doesn't cost them any more to design a bottle differently. Um, mm. And I think that's where actually these, these new packaging formats can actually help perhaps the more traditional uh, wine to actually raise their game when it comes to actually what bottles of wine look like and how they actually talk to consumers and actually um, start telling better stories and connecting better with the consumers. And I think that's where these cans and packaging, because they're having to work so much harder to, to, get, to get our attention, can actually have a positive impact on the non-packaging formats, which I mean, the non-new packaging formats. Yeah, very good point. And uh, it's interesting, the economy brands, what were the kind of value brands in the big retailers used to look really dreadful. Um, they they did not make you feel good about buying that product. They just looked cheap, frankly, and, and no one really wants to look cheap. And now, uh, take Sainsbury's, um, they've rebranded their, what was their value range. It's all the same sort of price point. It's now called Stamford Street. Uh, looks pretty sharp, actually. And uh, that's just, people want to feel good about what they buy, don't they? Yeah, and actually, um, I, was, I was very lucky last year to interview um, Sir John Hegarty, the um, advertising guru, legend, man behind all those, you know, Levi jeans adverts and Vork, Vork Dirk, uh, Sprookning, whatever, whatever, whatever it is. Um, anyway, he, he, he's done a lot of car advertising over the years, and he, he always uses car advertising as a really good um, benchmark to, to show what can be done. And I think if you look at something like Skoda, so... Um, say 10, 15 years ago, Skoda cars were seen as, a, as sort of the, the cheapest car on the block. It was like kind of like almost like an embarrassment if you were driving a Skoda car. But but now what they've done is they've, they've, they've worked so hard on their advertising to actually make Skoda cars aspirational. And, and going back to your very point, people don't buy Skoda cars uh, necessarily because they want to. It's because that's all they can afford. You know, and they want to feel proud and driving in their car and the same way that you want to feel proud about the wine that you're buying you know if if you can only afford to buy five six pound bottles of wine then you should make you should feel good about that and skoda for example you know they have this 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 tagline of like um not your average family car and then they they use that and it is is now skoda advertising is actually just use the word skoda they they sell it on its own on its own right And and i think wine can learn a lot particularly at that level, about not dumbing down or not looking down, even worse, at their customers and saying, oh, you can only afford this, therefore we're going to stick it in a in a crap label and, and, and put it on the bottom shelf. Is that like, no, you need to, you know, and then, then, then they wonder why wine sales are going down. You know, it, they need to celebrate what every bottle of wine they're selling um, and, and, and use use those, every trick of the book to do so. So, yeah, I think that's a really, a really, um, Lots of lessons to be learnt there, and, um, and particularly, you know, more pressure with prices going up. That we we respect wine at all all price points, really. Yeah, and an interesting example at the other end of a retailer's range. So I was talking about the bottom end just now. Um, at the top end, the likes of Tesco Finest, Asda Extra Special, Sainsbury's Taste, the difference. Waitrose number one. You've got um, a, a real effort going into those products on the whole um, to to make them good and to make them premium and to kind of um, shine almost like a, a, a halo that illuminates the retailer's brand, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually, well, what's really interesting actually is um, 
there's just been a real split between what you what we what we we, we call private label and what you call own label that's on on sale now and retailers and i think this here we really are seeing the impact of aldi and Lidl. And, um, you know, it's, it's amazing how, you know, Aldi may only have like 9%, 9% share of the market versus, say, Tesco's 23%. But Tesco's more obsessed about what Aldi is doing than Aldi is what, what Tesco is doing. And if you go into an Aldi or Lidl, so much of their, their, the, the, the brands they have in there are kind of these made-up brands, aren't they? These, these, these sort of like, um, you know, they, they, look, they look like... Uh, Nescafe, but it's, it's not Nescafe. But they they kind of mm. create these what, what you call private labels. What what retailers are now doing, the supermarkets are doing, is they've they've created a whole series of what what are called private label, whereby they're working with some of their big suppliers to to create brands that kind of look like the New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. So they'll have a big mountain range and a, and a big uh, uh, lake or something, and they'll they'll call it you know um, Valley Point or whatever. And they and they're using those brands to to really um, push the discounts through. So they're using private labelers as a real kind of discounted um, competitive brands. And then, as you say, they're using their own label, which is their own their own brand, their own name, to really push their premium element. And I think that's a really interesting uh, switch in how they've done that. And, they, and it's those private labels that are being. Um, discounted and the and it's the premiumization of own label which i think has, has come from trying to differentiate themselves from aldi and Lidl and and say that yes taste a difference come to sainsbury you know and that's that's a uh, that's something definitely to watch over over the coming months to see how that evolves because um i think that's there's a lot of scope uh within that and uh, and, and again the knock-on effect on that is um the suppliers who they work with to to create these private labels Will often be the brand, the the, the brand owners of, of some of the big brands that they then sell. So it's a bit of a quid pro quo, you know. We'll we'll list your your branded wines, but on the back of that, we also want you to make a a discounted private label for us as well. So you you're, you're seeing less suppliers being used by the retailers, but the suppliers they work with, they're using them to even bigger extent. Yeah, interesting. And the they very successfully when there was the shortage of uh, Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, um, they were very, some would say cynical, others would say very clever, very smart about making wines that that tasted uh, as near as damn it, and also looked as near as damn it with those uh, mountains and lakes and the names that you you say. Yeah. So they've, 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 they've got some, they've got rather good at doing that. And, and branding is interesting, because there aren't still to this day that many successful cut through wine brands i mean the most famous uh i suppose now uh in not in terms of volume of sales but in terms of of, of kind of people knowing what it is would be whispering angel i guess which is only 16 17 years old as a brand um and as has, has become you know really quite a premium at wine it's you know 20 quid odd in the uh in the shops now um there are others there's chocolate block as well um and then there are stronger brands that are perhaps more associated with the the, the lower end of the, of the market but um there aren't that many brands um in in wine in the same way that there are in spirits um do you think in wine terms that's going to change yeah well i think that's, that's kind of where i think the, the issue for wine always has been because obviously a lot of those um, you know, the spirits spirits brands are owned by the big global drinks companies. You know the Diageos, the Pernod Ricards. You know who have the 
millions of pounds to spend on invent on on advertising and um you know wine brands just haven't had that level of spend so they, they they're always sort of in a way minnows versus versus the size of a spirit brand but what i think you are seeing though is with some of the brands that you mentioned there um and you can throw in a brand like 19 crimes which um comes from treasury wine estates which actually is one of the world's biggest wine wine companies but um they what they've done with 19 crimes which is an australian wine brand is that they've again they've used their storytelling and packaging and design and they've almost created a a, a a brand within itself it's not necessarily just about the wine anymore so if you walk through a, through an airport um duty free you know you often see these big 19 crimes stands you know and uh you know for example i remember, remember recently going through halloween and you could go in and get a personalized um bottle made in 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 the in the airport which is kind of all halloween themed and you could put your own face on there and they do a lot digitally they do a lot native what you might call they are kind of a classic digital native brand now so a lot of the stuff they do is you know short storytelling um you know they have these labels that come to life if you if you put a qr code over them and and i think what they've been able to do is actually play outside of the normal wine rules so rather than have a wine that anybody could you know, in fact you'd, you'd probably struggle to even sort of like you know say what 19 crimes actually tastes like but you know what it looks like and you know what it what it what it's, it's kind of trying to say and i think that's where wine brands not all wine obviously but you know so, some of the bigger wine brands that we see on shelf that's where they need to be going over the next few years is looking at how do they have a persona and a personality that works on TikTok and works on Instagram, that works on Facebook, you know, that, that you know, you, you, you almost just see a, a tiny element of its branding and you immediately know what it, what it is. And, and um, uh, that, that is not going to come through um, tasting notes of wine or, um, you know, winning a gold medal in a wine competition. That, that's going to come from, uh, connecting with younger consumer base who are more into that kind of uh, wanting to feel a connection with a brand, um, and that, that could be like creating a leisure wear, it could be like creating t-shirts, or it could be create, creating a whole, creating perfumes, creating other things, you know, or connecting with other other brands that in other other sectors. So they kind of associate themselves with, you know, a cool brand from you know perfume market or from luxury or something and they and they, they kind of make an association with each other and uh, i think there's, there's a lot of interesting things that we're seeing with other brands and other other sectors that are doing that well and i think wine with brands like 19 crimes are showing a way forward to to sort of break themselves out of the traditional wine marketing and into something a lot more exciting mm, it's interesting 19 crimes are a wine brand in the first place whereas some of the other examples you're talking about are potential brand extensions let's say from a successful perfume brand or a clothing brand um into a a wine and uh, you know why not um celebrity brands um have been growing um and you know not just the kind of kylie wines although they are very successful uh, we've had idris elba who i interviewed for this podcast a couple of months ago he's um sort of entered at the premium end with um his champagne and his rosé both extremely good very well made uh products um we're seeing quite a few 
um, celebrity brands at various different places in the market. Um, is that something this coming year that we're going to see more of, do you think? Yeah, I, I think um, I mean, a lot of people in, in the wine industry kind of like turn the nose up at these celebrity brands, but I don't understand really why. <laughs> if you look at Kylie, I mean, um, you know, she's a, a kind of a phenomenon outside of her music as well you know she cuts across all demographic groups you know you've got crannies and young kids will you know are, are into kylie and i think you know if you want to broaden wine out to make people wine more interesting and palatable palatable to more more drinkers then you know i mean let's face it you know uh, the spirits sector you know have used celebrities a lot more than wine has over the years i mean spirits brands have been linking up with um and, and beer brand thinking about it. I mean, they've been working with celebrities, pop stars, movie stars, you know, for for, for decades. So it's, it's probably more of a new thing in in wine um, than it, than it has been in other drinks areas. And um, I think what what it what it does is it 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 just makes it so much more interesting. You know, if you're sitting there, Telly and, and and Kylie or Ryan Reynolds or as you say, Idris Elba, George Clooney pop up talking about their their product. You're gonna you're gonna look up from your phone to to see what they're saying, you know. And, and uh, yeah, it has to be matched by the quality of the drink. And I, but I think, there's, let's face it, there are celebrities and there are celebrities. There are celebrities that go into the jungle and there are celebrities that, you know, can sell sell, sell millions of, of records and, and, and win Oscars. And um, and I think it's, it's the fact that people like George Clooney and, and uh, you know, Brad Pitts or Ryan Reynolds, Idris Elbers, you know, the fact that they are putting all their brand values behind a particular product or a particular drinks category is something which we should celebrate, really. I mean, um, you know, they, they, they look after their brands incredibly um, carefully. Everything they do is, 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 is manicured to perfection. So if they, they bring those skills, you know, I mean, I know um, the people who work with Kylie and she says that she's incredibly exacting. You know, the bottle that, that they have for, for, for Kylie is, you know, she put, you know, drove them to make numerous changes to to make the bottle ever look as premium as possible for effectively a nine, ten pound wine. And it's because of that personal drive to make it look good you know, it then challenges all other drinks, all the other wines around it on the shelf to look better too. So I think these these celebrities, the right celebrities, can really raise the whole profile of the industry of the whole of of certain categories. And um, so, yeah, it, I think it's something we should welcome. And um, I think more and more people are, are going to look at look at working with the right kind of um, star star power, really, isn't it? rather than celebrity power. I think it's star 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 appeal. It's what we're all what we all love and. And, and buy into yeah and uh i wasn't at um the big industry trade show provine uh last year i know you were you're always there and kylie was there and it was weird looking at the the moving pictures of it you had a, a load of um you know um really very adult uh people who've grown up with kylie basically uh people my age uh and uh and your age um who were getting very excited that was it, it was it was like a, a a load of excited teenagers uh, when she was mobbed wasn't she well yeah well, and, and, well that that goes back to her her um professionalism you know i mean like she I mean, let's just face it you know Düsseldorf Düsseldorf in march is not exactly the um um perhaps when you're you know your top 10 kind of celebrity places to hang out <laughs> no. in fact you know she spent three full days and she had a stand you know in in the french um hall 
you know, to Kylie's stand, and she's, I mean, he's sort of walking past, and there's Kylie having a business meeting, you know, on the, you know, so you can see, not not hidden away behind in a little cupboard. She's actually out out on the sort of trading floor having having business meetings, and um, yeah, I think it just reflects the fact she, she's super serious about it, and um, you know, she says she actually wants to understand the industry, she wants to know how it works. You know, she clearly knows how the music industry works, but she, she, um, yeah, um, and you know, that that I think is, uh, you know, taking that level of professionalism to another level, and and of course, you know, you, you just see the impact it had on people there. You know, people wanted to buy into it, who are who are just professional wine, um, you know. So what if you if you analyze that in terms of what consumers think, then then it just shows how powerful it can be. So, well, hats off to for benchmark drinks for for getting Carly involved in wine, basically. Yeah, and as you say, if it gets uh, more people excited about uh, wine, then uh, great. What's to be sniffy about? A final thought from, uh, from 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 me. Obviously, English wine is a very still or, or punches above its weight. It's it's a very small section of the market, and obviously, price is is relatively high because there isn't much of it, and it's expensive to produce because it's mostly produced in the southeast of. Uh, of England, uh, where most people choose to live. So the costs are very high. Um, but it's been a, a barnstorming um, success um, in recent years. Do you think in the year ahead, English is going to continue to go, you know, great guns? Yes, very much so. And I, I, think, that, I think the real um, next step for English wine is, is actually going to be still wine. You know, as you say, I think, um, I think sparkling has clearly, you know, made, made a massive impact on the global industry now. I'm going back to Provine. You know, English sparkling wine producers aren't having to justify being there. They're they're there in their own right, and they're they're getting the plaudits and winning winning listings all over the world. Um, but I think still wine, um, including the amount of wine now being made in England now as well, is just you know the number of vineyards that have been planted means that there has to be an alternative to sparkling. You can't be selling all your wine above twenty five pounds. So I think still wine and the quality of still wine coming out. Um, from more and more producers is is really interesting and i think you know if we looked say 10 years ago at, at still wines still english wines you know you probably wouldn't really want to be serving it for your christmas dinner whereas i'm sure lots of people this year did have english still wine for the over the, with the christmas dinner and and I, and I think that is a real mark of like how fast it's it's changed um I mean, we work. We we know Chris Wilson with his Gutter and Stars wines up in Cambridge. I mean, he, he's making some absolutely amazing um, still wines, and I think um, oh, fantastic, you know, yeah, of, absolutely, yeah. And I, I think I think that that's where you know you can get if you can sell those wines at sort of between ten, 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 twenty, ten to twenty five pounds. There's more people can buy in buy into English wine at 12, 14, 16, 18 pounds. Let's face it, you know, we're not, we, we talked earlier about people not being able to afford a six pound bottle of wine, whether they certainly aren't going to be able to afford to buy a bottle of night timber on a regular basis. So um, having, having more English at more palatable and more accessible pricing can only be good for England. And I think also, as you say, the volume of wine now being made and the quality of winemakers. So we're seeing actually a lot more international winemakers choosing to come to work in England. You know, um, I mean, Plumpton College um, is literally pumping out um, <laughs> new winemakers every year. And, um, you know, we're seeing more investment. We're seeing um, French producers. Uh, we're seeing South American producers even in, uh, investing in, in English wineries. And, um, you know, I think it's, um, yeah, I, I, I think that it's incredibly exciting. I think it just needs to be managed carefully in terms of how it how it does evolve. But I think still wine, 
English steel mine, I think we'd, we'd, we'd chat in a year's time. I think that'll be where there'll be lots of great stories and lots of um, interesting things happening in steel mine. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And uh, Henry Jeffries was on back in the summer. If um, anyone listening hasn't heard that, it's a fantastic listen. Uh, talking about the uh, very interesting story of uh, the English wine revolution in uh, vines in a cold climate, his book. It's a fantastic chat. So go and listen to that if you haven't heard that already. Um, but we end there with a reason to be cheerful amidst the rising prices and uh, and so forth. Um, actually, the innovation we're talking about is is also a, a good reason to be cheerful too. So um, thank you for that, uh, Chief. Your uh, predictions are, uh, have proved to be pretty bang on uh, in the last uh, two years that we've um, we've been doing this. So... Uh, fingers crossed for this year, and uh, thanks very much for sharing them with us on the drinking hour. Thanks, Chief. Really, really pleased to spend this time with you, and uh, yeah, look, look forward to sharing some of. Hopefully, some of these predictions come true. We can we can actually enjoy drinking them as well through the year. Yeah, and happy New Year, by the way, too. The drinking hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. Okay, let's round off with some medal winners, as always. Our focus this time is going to be the growing category we talked about earlier, low and no alcohol, mindful drinking, where innovation has been breathtaking. It's a growing category for the IWSC as well. Here's a gold medal winner from the 2023 judging. This one's from Belgium, Opius Albedo. It's an anise herbal-based aperitif and or cocktail ingredient. Uh, The judges loved it. They gave it 95 points. They describe an impressively accurate flavour profile, well-defined and generous, offering wonderfully precise aniseed aromas and flavours. The palate is harmonious and beautifully round, leading to a well-balanced and remarkably persistent finish. Sublime, they said. Opius was founded in 2020 by two cocktail enthusiasts, uh, Leander Buchels and Lucas Lambrechts, and they're apparently on a mission to bring people together and redefine their perception of spirits. And it sounds like they're off to a great start with that gold medal. The next choice is from the United States, another gold medal winner here, 96 points for this, Wilderton Bittersweet Aperitivo, described as a non-alcoholic botanical spirit. The judges said this, fabulously deep in colour, citrus peel on the nose with rich bitter notes that blend seamlessly on the palate with layers of herbs. Caramel notes add a touch of sweetness on the finish with continued underlying bitterness. Here's an Amaro that won a very strong silver, 94 points, just one shy of a gold, uh, Luciano 1894, Amaro Luciano Zero. The judge's tasting note describes woody spiced aromas with plenty of cloves and cinnamon character on the palate with excellent bitterness and complexity and warming mouthfeel from balanced sweetness. To Australia next, a non-alcoholic wine from one of the great names there, Brown Brothers, Siena Zero Non-Vintage won a gold medal, 95 points. The judges said this. The nose is soft but very appealing with notes of ripe cherry, chocolate, walnut and coffee. Rich, juicy and rounded. 
It offers a balanced, sweet cherry fruit and light sparkle. The oak is well integrated into a lovely finish. Finally for now, if gin is your thing but you're dry for January, here's a gold medal winner to try. It won 95 points. Clean Co. Clean G. Uh, This also won a bronze in the low, no drinks and tonic category too. Uh, Describing it, the judges said it was bold and authentic, which uh, came across on the nose and continued to show citrus and juniper combining in harmony throughout the palate. Enjoyable heat of pepper opens up at the finish. Well made and very enjoyable, they said. So well done to Clean Co. And that's it for this, the first episode of 2024, episode 143 of The Drinking Hour. Next time, we look at the highlights of series 12, uh, which kicked off in style with Idris Elba, no less. I hope you enjoyed the chat with uh, the chief, Richard Siddle, and his crystal ball. Uh, Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode, in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.